this morning. Um, we are going to end our series today, and I had intended to actually go a little bit longer than this, but um, there's something kind of dominating our national attention right now that needs to be addressed, and uh, you can probably guess what it is. So next week we're going to start a series called The Elephant in the Room, and uh, it's a, just a four-part series. We're actually going to be reading the book of Titus and seeing what the early church had to say about politics and how we live in the political system that we live in. So, um, and no, I am not going to tell you who I am voting for or who Jan is voting for, Jan Busboom. I might tell you who Heidi is going to vote for, but we'll see. Um, yeah, so there you go. So to get started this morning on our, our final um, part of this series, God, I Wish You Knew. Uh, the other day, now, men, we, at the men's retreat, I just want, I need to get this off onto the table. At the men's retreat, this is a part of what I shared there, um, the, especially the beginning. So don't lose your, your focus. Like, keep paying attention to me because we are going somewhere else with this. But I wanted to start with a really similar place. What we did at the men's retreat the other day, we're going to talk about fear a little bit. So a little while ago, I saw an updated list of the most common phobias from the American Psychiatric Association. They don't define all the pho- phobias, but this is what they say a phobia is. A phobia is something that causes such stress that it interrupts normal life function. That sounds psychological, doesn't it? Normal life function. So here's a list of the usuals. They start at the very top, number one, with arachnophobia. Yeah, it's a little large, so it's kind of hard to get your brain around something that big, isn't it? Just just give it a moment. The creepy crawlies will go right up your skin any second now. Right, okay, number two is the fear of snakes. It's ophidiophilia. Yeah, feeling a little better. There's a little squirm in the room just now. Uh, the third one is necrophilia, which is called the fear of death. That's right. And then number four, right after that, is glossal, glossophobia, which is the fear of public speaking. Isn't that interesting? Jerry Seinfeld points out that what this means is that if you were to gather a bunch of people at a funeral, that more people would rather be the guy in the grave than the guy giving the eulogy. Crazy. Crazy. All right. Uh, let's see. Now, they get, they get kind of weird after this. this is, they go off into this weird, weird place. So this next one is, uh, oh, on, on, I can't even pronounce it, onphalophobia, which is the fear of belly buttons. It didn't specify whether innies or outies were more terrifying, but the fear of belly buttons. And then there's archibudiophobia, which is, of course, the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. I know. And then there's, this is one of my favorites, windbagophobia, and that's the fear of long sermons. I made that up. What does he say? This is the look you gave your pastor when he says he was going to wrap up the sermon 35 minutes ago. If you can't poke fun at yourself, who can you poke fun at, right? Right? Okay. Let's see. I made that one. So here's another interesting one. Nomophobia. Can anybody guess what this is? Did I just hear fear of garden gnomes like throughout the whole... Nomophobia. Oh, now I get it. That would have been good. I didn't think of that. No. Nomophobia is the fear of being without your cell phone. That's right. It's the fear of being without your cell phone. It says, this, this is crazy, 50% of people in our society experience extreme symptoms of anxiety when they are without their phone. Extreme anxiety. See, these are all the people in the room who just looked up from their phone and said, who, what, me, phone, cell phone? Right? It's crazy. So 
The reason I wanted to start with this funny, silly stuff is because I wanted to talk briefly about fear. And really, we're actually going to be moving and we're going to talk about love, which you might have picked up from songs we sang this morning. But fear isn't something that most of us would really or readily admit to. But I would guess that there are a number of people here this morning who are completely immobilized by some sort of fear. Maybe it's a fear of the future. Uh, You're struggling in your health and you don't know what's going to happen in the next 6, 9, 12 months. Uh, Maybe it's a fear of the future. I already said that. Maybe it's a fear of uh, of your marriage isn't going well. You're struggling at home between you and your wife or you and your husband. You're kind of thinking, is this going to end in divorce? And if it ends in divorce, what's my family going to look like? How how are my kids going to navigate this? What are we going to do at Christmas and Thanksgiving? Some of you are thinking about your family as well, and you're thinking, man, my kids are making some really dumb decisions right now. This is just not smart. This is not good stuff going on, and I don't know what direction they're going to go, because they make this decision now, but in five years, these sorts of decisions lead to prison, and we're kind of worrying about our kids. Some some of you are fearful about entering a new relationship. I've known people um, in, in the university setting specifically who are hesitant to enter a good relationship because they're afraid... Uh, they're scared of either commitment or they're scared of rejection. So we live with these fears that hold us back. And some there's some people that are so afraid of being uh, being alone for the rest of their life that they're afraid to break off a bad relationship, a relationship that's causing destruction in their life, a relationship that's leading to abuse. And they're, they're so afraid of being alone that they don't want to let it go. All of us, all of us experience fear some way, somehow. Finances, family, security, Elections, nuclear weapons, Syria, we could just ISIS, we could just keep going down the line. This is what our culture talks about. And one of the things that, uh, this isn't in my notes, I just noticed this about our, our presidential elections right now. Not only are they bashing one another over and over again, in between that, they're interjecting fear statements. Well, if that guy gets elected, then this is going to happen. And if she gets elected, then this is going to happen. And, and it's just all fear taxes, fear tactics designed to cause us to look to one or the other for security in our lives. Today, finishing this series, uh, I just kind of want to back up and say, you know, so far we've talked about the, the reality that God is good. The God I wish you knew is His Father. The God I wish you knew is so generous. So generous. He is not a stingy God at all. Amen? You guys agree with that? I hope so after hearing that sermon. But God is trustworthy. We can trust Him with our hearts, with our lives, with our futures. Last week, Kristen shared so eloquently on God is just. I got to read her sermon transcript, and it was brilliant. Good job, Kristen. Who was here for Kristen? Yeah? Yeah. Clapping is more appropriate for that. Thank you, Kristen, for filling in for me. So this week, I want to I come back um, to probably the deepest, most real truth about who God is. The God I wish you knew is love. The God I wish you knew is love. And, and I want to try to do this without using John 3. So that is a big challenge for me. I gotta tell you, you know, the most common, the most known verse in the whole Bible. So now we've looked at God at all these different, uh, these different perspectives, and what have we done all along the way? We've corrected back to who? Jesus. Whenever we have questions about who God is, whether He's good, whether He's kind, whether He's just, we always correct back to Jesus because in Jesus we see God's perfect self-portrait. Right? That's right. So, as I was preparing and thinking about this, I was looking at all the stories of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those four books. I was reading all these stories of Jesus and thinking, hey, which one of these stories best points back to this idea of God is love? And then I came to the reality of like, hey, which one of these stories doesn't point back to this, right? 
Which one of these stories, which one of the stories of Jesus does not reveal a God of perfect and holy love? They all do it. So that got me thinking. I'm like, well, let's, let's, let's think broader than this. And just think not just the stories of Jesus, but what about the people who knew Jesus? What about the disciples who followed Jesus through the wilderness for three years? What about the, uh, the apostles that were leading the church after Jesus had left earth? How did they see Jesus as the God of love? And honestly, this is one of the biggest things that the early disciples actually had to deal with, believe it or not. So we're correcting back to Jesus, but we're going to correct back to Jesus by looking through, really, uh, the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul. But we're going to be sticking our, our noses. We're going to anchor ourselves in God's Word in 1 John chapter 4, if you want to open the Bible there. So if you look back at history, you're going to see that the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd century Christians believed that Jesus loved them deeply before the Bible told them so. He's following me that Jesus loves me, this I know, before the Bible tells me so, right? This is our proof that Jesus loves us because the Bible tells us so. But the first, second, and third century Christians didn't have the Bible to tell them so. They didn't. So they loved Jesus before the Bible told them so. They were able to hang on to this Jesus who is a God of love. And I want to show you why. See, the first apostles, they were looking at Jesus, and here's what they had to wrestle with. If Jesus is God, right? We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If Jesus is God, how is it that God could fit inside of an earth suit? How is it the God that created the expanse of the universe, who is bigger than the expanse of the universe, somehow managed to fit into an itty, itty, teeny, weeny living space, right? How yeah, many of you guys know? remember that from, uh, what was that movie, Aladdin, right? There's the quote from Aladdin. A couple of you guys picked up on it. This is itty-bitty, teeny-weeny living space. How could God be God and also be man? This theological term that we talk about when we say that God is become man is, is called incarnation. Is that God took himself and poured himself into an earth suit. See, the problem is that if Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God, and that God manages to fit inside of an earth suit that is finite, flesh that is prone to suffering, sickness, and death, how could God get in there and still be God as well as a limited human being? How is that even possible? Paul came up with a part of the answer when he said this in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. In other words, Jesus, in becoming man, had to empty himself of some of the divine rights of God. Omnipotence, for example, that's all powerfulness. Um, omniscience, all knowingness, like being able to know everything all the time at any moment from all of history, future, past, present. Omnipresence. Being everywhere at one time, an all-pervasive, all-the-time presence. God had to empty himself of some of those things to pour himself into human flesh. Now, if he did that, what is left to qualify Jesus as fully God? You guys follow my question here? What, what's left? What is left of Jesus that qualifies? And, and this is the big thing. If Jesus is the perfect revelation of God, which both Paul and Jesus himself has said, he is the perfect self-portrait of God, what is it that is essentially God that is in Jesus 
that allows us to understand him as fully God? What is left, the essence, which is to say that if there is anything less than this, then he's not God. But he's achieved this place. He's got this part left that is God, that is essentially God. What of the Father did people see in Jesus? When the disciples looked at Jesus as he walked, what did they see? The answer I submit to you is that Jesus embodied the perfect character of God that is reflected in John's famous statement in 1 John 4, 8 and 4, 16, that God is love, agape, unconditional, pursuing, unsurrendering love. Love that goes to the ends of the earth to chase us. Let's read this together in 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Read that this next part out with me, verse chapter verse eight. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Underline those last three words. Words. God is love. Underline them in your Bible or in your notes. I, I recommend having a paper Bible with you, especially the next several weeks as we look at a specific book in the Bible. Underline them. God is love. In this. The love of God was made manifest, underline that word too, made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, it's not about how well we love him, but that he loved us and sent his son as a payment for our sins. According to this sacrifice, God is not defined by absolute power. God is not defined by complete knowledge of everything. God is not defined by universal presence. Instead, he is defined by love. Not even just by love, but as love. This is a being verb. He is love. The kind of self-sacrificial love that we see on the cross at Calvary. That's 1 John 3.16 says that. In, the other, in other words, this is from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said this. He's a theologian uh, during World War II. He's German. He actually he was a pacifist before World War II. And then in the midst of World War II, he actually participated in a plot to kill Hitler because he believed he couldn't stand by. God's justice could not stand by and allow Hitler to do what he was doing. And he lost his life in the process. So this guy is a tough theologian, right? He said this. i got to find my place. I lost it. Oh, um, love is the revelation of God. And the revelation of God is Jesus Christ. God is love. Another theologian, Peter Kreft, said this, that love is God's very essence. Everything else is a manifestation of that presence. Everything else is a manifestation of God's love. In other words, every blessing, every healing, every promise in God's word, every touch from the hands of Jesus, every touch from one of the hands of one of his people in your life, every good and perfect gift, all of these things are manifestations of God as love. Everything else. It's God revealing himself to us. So looking at Jesus from this perspective, it becomes really obvious that Jesus is fully God in human form because as a full human, Jesus perfectly embodies God's love. Perfectly. When the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact representation of of God's being, this is what he's saying. To become fully human being, the Son of God had to give up the use of his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence. But he did not, could not, would not surrender his loving essence, his perfect reflection of the love of God. It is this essence that's most perfectly revealed when Jesus bent down 
take our most extreme possible action of love, which is to surrender his life, not just not just to passively allow people to kill him, but to actively surrender his life to die for our sins, to suffer and become our curse, which Genesis says there's a curse. The curse is death for sin. And he does it to redeem us. This is a completely radical shift in understanding. The early church was like wrestling with this. And it's a radical shift in understanding who God was. The Apostle Paul recognized it when he wrote in uh, 1 Corinthians 1. He says that the cross is a stumbling block. It's a scandalon is the, the Greek word. It's a scandal. It's a scandal to the Jews. And it's foolishness to the Gentiles. The concept of a God who is essentially love. And it's love for us. And that love led him to become powerless on the cross. It's completely foolish to Greeks who were lovers of wisdom. Because like many of us today, the essence, God's essence was defined by his otherness, his transcendence, his power, his control, his freedom freedom from the feelings like rage, sorrow, joy, fear. God is completely detached from these is how the Greeks saw them. And many of us see him that way too, that he is out there somewhere and he's not moved by our circumstances. And all along in this series, we keep pointing back to God. God is moved to tears by our circumstances. God is present with us in our circumstances. God understands our pain because he understands pain and suffering. So it was foolishness to the, the Gentiles. The cross was a scandal, a stumbling block to the Jews who were looking for the Messiah to come in power, right? And to lead them into victory over their enemies. For, for them, the scandal is to accept a Savior who would choose to be crucified at the hands of his enemies. And not only, not only that, not only to choose to crucify, be crucified by them, but to pray for them while they're doing it, right? They're, they're, they've nailed him to a cross. They've beaten him bloody. And he looks down at them, and what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's nuts. That's nuts. Like, you know, you make my sandwich wrong, and I'm like, you know, I'm like, you're not even my enemy. You're just my sandwich maker. And I get upset with you. But, but Jesus, his love compels him to look down from the cross at his enemies and to pray for them. That is complete and utter foolishness and a stumbling block to the Jews who were looking for a Messiah to come in power and to destroy his enemies with divine power, power from on high. Like many of us today, though, the Jews define God in terms of how he favors our nation, how he favors our causes, how he stands against our enemies. And in Jesus, we see a love that loves Instead, Paul saw a cross as the ultimate and perfect expression of the power of God and the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 1.24. By redefining God's essence as self-sacrificing love instead of power, he revealed God's true nature in a way that looks weak and foolish from a strictly human standpoint. So the very heart of what it means to be God, to be perfect in what God is, to be fully God and fully human for Jesus. It's perfect, self-sacrificing, unconditional love. And that love is best expressed in the story of the cross. That explains why the cross is so central to our faith. And it explains John 3.16. I'm just going to reference it. I'm not going to quote it. But what does it mean for us, right? You're like, okay, those are some big theological things, Pastor JB. You sounded like a professor just then. You used Greek theology words, and I'm like a little bit lost about what any of that means for me. I get it. 
Beyond God's reconciling himself to us in a general way, what does it mean for you specifically? It's very easy to theologize about who God is. To take the stories and pull out theological uh, premises and put them down on the paper, and they really don't change our lives. And what we focus on here at Pullman Foursquare is not just being Bible-hearing people, but Bible-doers, right? Doers of the Word of God. We talk about our Bible studies, not as Bible studies, but as Bible doings. So what do we do? What does the perfect love of God mean for us? And what does it do in us? Again, the disciple John is the one who, he's the disciple that Jesus loved. What a, what a title, right? That'd be so cool. And the one that Jesus loved is reclining next to him. He refers to himself in these ways. I always thought it was a little pompous. But I think that he was, he was captivated by this love of God. And then he spent, say, so John took care of Jesus' mother after Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected. That was his job, his one job. Everybody else, they had to take care of the church. Peter had to preach. You know, Thomas had to manage the money. They were taking care of stuff, taking care of widows and orphans. But John, he just took care of Mary. And he had all this time to sit around and think about all the stories of Jesus and to think about all the things that happened, all the little jokes they shared, all the little quips and quotes that happened, all the teachings of Jesus, all the times that John was able to recline his head on Jesus. And he comes up with these massive statements about who Jesus really is, the love of God. So let's read from 1 John chapter 4. I want to continue on where we were just at and look at verses 16 and 18. This is what John, that beloved disciple, says. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love, self-sacrificing love, agape, abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also, underline or circle that word also, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. The fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What does this perfect love do for us? Firstly, perfect love makes us Perfect love makes us perfect. John says that if we have experienced the love of God, then we too, we will do two things. Two things will happen. First of all, as he is, so also are we in this world. As he is, perfect love, so also are we. And not just in heaven, but where? Here, in this world. We are self-sacrificing love. Now, both, many of you have both of you. That came from mouth. Both of you are looking at me right now, and you're saying, all of you, I mean, like, I know, in my, even in my own heart, as I'm speaking this, I'm going, that is the biggest crock I have ever heard. I am not perfect self-sacrificing love. What do you mean, as he is, so I will be in this world? You know, I'm feeling a little bit like a failure right now, if that's the truth. If, this, if God's word is speaking true, I'm, I'm feeling like I miss it. I am certainly not a perfect reflection of Jesus' self-sacrificing love. You know, I mentioned the sandwiches early. Imagine when I get my coffee and it's not right. Right? If my coffee isn't right, I get upset. Or if a bad driver cuts me off on the road, you know? It's like things get interesting real fast because I'm like, oh, I just want to, you know? None of that is perfect self-sacrificing love. Those are just little teeny tiny moments of my life. Does that mean that I am not a Christian? There was a lot of discussion just then. 
It's hard to do Yoda's voice. The Holy Spirit speaks to us differently. And sometimes it's hard to define Satan's voice from the Holy Spirit's voice. You know, we get it mixed up because both of them are speaking truth to us in some respects. But their purposes are different. So let me just help you understand the difference between the two. So when you hear voices, okay, maybe not literal voices, but when you hear these voices speaking to you, you'll understand which is which. Satan always starts with who you are and what you've done and beats you up for it. Who you are, what you've done, and he beats you up for it. But the Holy Spirit starts with a declaration of what he is making you in Christ Jesus. Mighty man of power. Righteous saint. Perfect in love. Perfect in righteousness. Holy, beloved one of God. Don't wait to be perfect to start living it. Don't, be, don't wait around to be brave to start living brave. Don't wait for God to make you into this thing and then start living out of it. That's not how it works. That, that's also another sermon, so we'll not go there. Second thing that John says that perfect love does for us is this. It makes us, perfect love makes us brave. We no longer live in fear. Not even of, arachn- of, of arachnophobia, of, of spiders. We don't even live in fear of those. The second thing that John says is God's perfect love makes us fearless. It says this in verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out, or the better word, better translation of the word casts out is drives out fear. Look at the next phrase. For fear has to do with... For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I love that phrase. Fear has to do with punishment. We see something that makes us afraid, and we feel vulnerable. This all goes back to the garden. Adam and Eve sin, and what do they do? They cover themselves up with fig leaves. Bad plan. Fig leaves are horrible. They're like fiberglass. So it's like covering up fiberglass. Horrible idea. But that's what they used. The first effect of the fall was a sense of our nakedness, a sense of feeling of vulnerability. So we put on clothes to hide ourselves. Clothes of good performance. Clothes of power clothes of good relationships or a good reputation, clothes of holiness and righteousness, things that cover up our brokenness, our sinfulness, our failures. We try to hide behind those fig leaves. But the problem is, we live in fear because we know that any moment, those suckers could be torn away. Fig leaves are by nature very fragile. They are. And they can be torn up and pulled away. But in the cross, get this, in the cross... We are clothed with the invincible robe of the perfect love of God. With God's perfect love, what else can we be afraid of? There's a verse in Numbers 23, 23. It says this, that no sorcery can succeed against Jacob. Weird verse, right? You're like, well, that's random, Pastor J.B. No sorcery can succeed against Jacob. So this is when the children of Israel were about to go into the promised land. And they sent out spies. And the spies came back and they said, hey, this land is flowing with milk and honey. But guess what? There's also some really big, powerful people with powerful magic. They got bad juju. And they can defeat us easily. And God says to them, there is no sorcery that can succeed against you. They're fearing, what if their power is stronger than our power? What if they have Lord Voldemort? He who shall not be named. And God says to the people... Who cares what his name is? My name is greater. 
My name is greater. My name is bigger. Psalm 56, 11. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? The answer, nothing. Say it with me. Nothing. Do you know that kind of love? A love that has driven out fear? I'd like to say I know that love perfectly. But I don't. Over and over again I cover. I hide. And then I have to come out in the open and I have to reveal and I have to say this is what's going on. This is this is me. This is this is the real me. And then it's in that that I become perfected in his love. If you are experiencing any kind of fear in your life, it's because you have lost touch with some aspect of God's perfect love. It's that simple. Fear of any kind, anxiety of any kind, you have lost touch with some aspect of God's perfect love. Think about the ways God's love is perfect. Let's just take a quick look. I want to run four quick aspects. First of all, God's love is perfect in its intensity. Simple statement. God could not love you couldn't. I mean, the cross proves it. But you're thinking, he did that for everyone. That was just like a general thing for everybody. But God loves you and could not love you more, specifically. You individually, of all the people of all the world, each one of you in this room, God loves individually, specifically, wholly, and could not love you more. There's a joke that says, can God build a, make a rock that he cannot lift? It's all, it's, it's kind of like a a false proof to say, oh, well, then God can't be God. If God can't make a rock, then he can't do something. And if, you know, he can't move it, then clearly he's not God. But I want to tell you something God can't do. He can't love you any more than he already does. Nor can he love you less. It is not in his nature. Some of you are thinking, oh, well, God probably loves me like you love your dog, Dexter. My dog, Dexter. I love my dog, Dexter. Sweetest thing in the world, except for first thing in the morning when he comes into the room and wants to lick you. It's like, oh, it's too early for being licked. And then he wants to bite you. I love Dexter. I think he's great. I think he's a great dog. He's a sweet little thing. But you know what? If Dexter and one of my children were out in the middle of the road and a car was coming, who would I say? My daughter, right? You, Dexter. If any one of you, almost any one of you, were in the street... I'm kidding. If any one of you were facing death, or it was between you and my dog, I would save your life. I would save your life. And you're all thinking, oh, okay, well, God probably loves me like he loves his dog, Dexter. And and so maybe he would push me out of the way of a truck. But maybe he loves his dog, Dexter, more. I don't know. But this is the thing. Jeremiah 31.3 says, this is God speaking to his people. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. This is written to the people of Israel in their darkest hour. God, in his, the book of Ezekiel, there's this image of him literally leaving the building. Okay, His whole presence, gone. The people of Israel are left all alone. Because God, they have just turned their back on him. They have gone to false idols. They have just destroyed everything that is good and holy. God has had to back off and back away. And yet, in that moment, he still turns around and looks at these people who are proactively prostituting themselves away from him. And he says to them, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. You live and move and have your being because Jesus loves you. God flexes 
uses this whole universe and bends it, and I'm going to talk about this in a minute, he bends this whole universe, every molecule in it, for your good and for, for his, his will and perfect way in your life. God loves you with an everlasting love. God loves you just as he are, as, just as you are, and he speaks to you as you were created to be in Jesus. There is no link to which love would not go to redeem those who call, he calls his own. And that is what he's called you and me, his own. God revealed his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you in the midst of the mess. In the middle of the mess, he loves you. He cannot love you anymore, nor any less. The second aspect of God's love that we can lose touch real quick with is constancy. That's a theological term. It's a state of being that is marked by consistent faithfulness. Always faithful, always true, never leaves, never forsakes. So when Jesus sent out his 12 disciples, he said this. Remember, you guys don't remember the Great Commission. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded to you. Now get this. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. He, like, finishes this sentence with almost like a run-on sentence. It's like, I am with you. That should be enough. But now I'm going to add this word always so that you know that this never changes. Now wait, that's maybe not enough. Let's keep going. To the ends of the age. Till everything burns, till everything's destroyed, till it all comes to pieces, till it's just done and we start over again in the kingdom of heaven. I am with you. The Great Commission comes with a great announcement. That's what this last part is actually called. The Great Announcement. I am with you. The power that goes and lasts to the ends of the earth comes from this announcement. I am with you. The power to go to the ends of the earth, to preach the gospel, to baptize people, to save people from their, their circumstances, to rescue and to, to reveal the love of God, all the power for that comes from this statement. I am with you. You know what's really cool about that? God is saying this over and over again throughout the whole Bible. Back to Moses. Moses is walking on the, the hill. He sees a burning bush. And he send, God sends him out. And he's like, well, how do I know you will go with me? And he says, I am with you. Gideon, how do I know you? I will go with you. Jonah, I don't want to go. Yeah, you're going to go, but I will go with you. Over and over and over again throughout the scriptures, in all the prophets, I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. God says it over and over and over again. And we like, Ooh, I don't hear you. God's one line answer to Gideon's fear, to Moses' fear, to our fear I am with you. Question What would it be like? In any situation, in any circumstance, at any time, with anybody, you knew that God was right there with you. What would that be like? This is what we're offered in Christ Jesus. What would it be like to know that He is with you at all times? You're going into a new relationship. I am with you. You're going into a new ministry. I am with you. You're going to talk to somebody about God's love. I am with you. Dealing with your problems in your marriage, I am with you. Struggling with, with finances, struggling with fear of all kinds, I am with you. And God's not looking over your shoulder waiting for you to screw it up. He's looking over your shoulder and saying, Beloved child of God, perfect saint, perfect in love, perfect in righteousness, I am with you. 
any secular article about overcoming fears, it's almost always about closing to your, eye, your eyes to the things that make you afraid. It's just shutting them off. Don't think about the things that make you afraid. If you're afraid of falling off a building and you've got to be up on a tall building, well, don't look at the ground. Look up and just walk. You know, just close your eyes to the things you're afraid of. Now, personally, I think that's ridiculous. However, the Bible comes at this a whole different way. It doesn't say shut your eyes to the things you're afraid of. It says you got your eyes on the wrong thing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his glorious face. And the things of earth, the things that we're afraid of, will grow strangely dim. It's not closing your eyes to the things that make you afraid. It's opening your eyes to the presence of God. Right beside you. Some of you have lost the sense that God is faithful and stays with you. You know, you, you feel like your sin is so repulsive to God that he's turned his back on you. You need to remember that God's one-line answer to every prayer, all the time, is this. I am with you. And I feel like, like right now I could actually prophetically say this. Thus says the Lord. I am with you. You walk out of this building. It doesn't matter if you're 10, 14, 15, 12, 11, 50, 60, 80. I'm with you. It doesn't matter if you're going to a construction job to play on your, your razor scooter. I am with you. It doesn't matter what your relational dynamics are. I am with you. It doesn't matter what tests you face at school or what relationship breaks you face at school. It doesn't, none of that matters. I am with you. Intensity and constancy haven't grabbed you yet, which they already have grabbed me. Perhaps this next one will touch you. Sufficiency. Sufficiency means that God is enough to satisfy every need and every longing. You say, Jesus is all you need. That's stupid, right? I mean, I don't know. I like sandwiches. I feel like I need sandwiches. Air, that's kind of important. Income, kind of important. I need these things. We would all agree that air, water, and food are all necessities of life, things we need to survive. So what do we mean when we say that Jesus is all you need? You know, it's in our cards. It's on our T-shirts. Jesus is all you need. Salvation is the one area where we really try to be enough all in our try to fulfill our need for salvation with vacations to Cancun or New York. You know, we think, hey, if my location was changed, then I would be happy. If I had a different house, then I would be happy. If I had a different job, then I'd be happy. If I had, you know, this amount of money, I'd be happy. But guess what? I read this article this week. It said this. Two really important things. It says, we will never be happy someplace else if we aren't happy right where we're at now. And that is because, number two, no matter where you go, you bring yourself mind blown. Wherever you go, there you are. You can't escape yourself. The skyline might change. The furniture arrangement might change. The tile in the bathroom floor might change. Your stuff might change. But your story, your pain, your sin, your discontent, that stuff will follow you wherever you go. Our only hope is to find fulfillment in what actually fulfills our every longing. It's not a vacation. It's not an income. It's not a house. It's not a place. Is Jesus himself. And he said this, whoever drinks this water that I offer will never thirst again. We are created for a love relationship with God. We're not created for a beach. We're not created for a city. We're not created for a job. We're not even created for a ministry. We're created for a loving relationship with God. And he satisfies our every need. So if you're experiencing fear, discontent, it's because 
because you've lost touch with the sufficiency of God. Lastly, God's sovereignty. I should say this. Seek God first and everything else falls into place. It's that simple. Seek Him first and everything else falls into place. Lastly, God's sovereignty. Sovereignty, He loves us sovereignly. And that means that He has control of all things. And I alluded to this earlier. God's sovereignty doesn't just over politics. There's rulers of this world or this or that. It's, it's over every molecule, every atom. And He commandeers everything for His good and perfect will for our lives. Perfect means it couldn't get any better. The outcome transcends any other improvement. Its progress accomplishes every goal and purpose along the way. It is flawless in its execution. It's entire in its scope. It's unequaled in its goodness. And Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And all of that authority is bent toward working out his perfect plan and will in your life. And it is for your good. We believe that God is good. We just question his ability to actually shape things for our good. Because we aren't seeing it. We see the, our work helping us along in life. We see that, that love and support of our friends and our family make us, you know, make our ascendancy possible. And we think it's the things that we do that make life great. It's starting to sound a little bit like an Oscar acceptance speech. I'd like to thank all the little people for making this possible. Somehow we lose sight of the miracles. Somehow we lose sight of how God interacts and intervenes in our circumstances. We miss God in the little places, or worse, we take credit for the work of God and give our Oscar acceptance speech. We get so focused on what I want to do, what I have done, and what I am doing that we miss what God is doing sovereignly in us. But we have something that shows us that God is in control and is on our side. It's the cross. We talk about sovereign control. Jesus took the worst action of men and turned it around on its heel for our good and for his glory. For our good. His love is for us. And His sovereign control is used on behalf of us to rescue us. So I'm going to conclude with this and just kind of pray. And, and Man, this is some big stuff to deal with, isn't it? It's like you're going to be chewing on this all day. Because this is, God is love. What does that even mean? Well, this is what it means. That God is perfect in His, his uh, intensity, His consistency, His sufficiency, and His sovereignty. And if we lose touch with any of those things, Fear, anxiety, all of those things creep in, and they keep us from living as one perfected in love. Perfect love drives out all fear. God couldn't love you more. He never leaves you or forsakes you. Our sense of fulfillment comes being in being possessed by that love, being possessed by Him, owned by Him, held by Him lives placed at his feet. He commandeers every molecule in the universe to work out his good and perfect plan for our lives. So here's where the rubber really meets the road. The God I wish you knew is perfect love. But what that means for us is that we are no longer bound by fear. If you're struggling with fear, it's because you've lost touch with the love of God. So what I'd like you to do is just take, I'm going to take one more minute. You hear the crying. I'm going to take one more minute. I want you to pull out your bulletin. Write down the thing that you fear most. Write down the thing you fear most. Is it others' opinions of you? Is it that you won't be accepted? That you're not cool enough, good enough, smart enough? Is it that you won't find a spouse? Is it that you'll be alone forever? I'm just listing things off that we can be afraid of. Why don't you just write that down?
I'd like to suggest to you to read the scriptures in the beginning of the bulletin this week over that fear. There's six of them, read one a day, and begin to understand how deep and how wide and how long is God's love for you. There is no end to it. And the perfect love casts out all fears. Father, I pray that the words that we received this morning would strike deep in our hearts. Places of fear and anxiety, places of hiding that we hold on to, Lord, that you would pierce those places with your perfect love. And as we look to who Jesus is, that's what we would see, your perfect love, the essence of who 